Hi, and welcome to episode 11 of Jewish Thought Flow. This is your host, Avi Cohen. Today, I have something very special for you. We are doing our first ever mailbag episode where we answer emails from listeners. I told you, if you email me, there's a good chance you'll get on the show. We have a lot of listeners, but I can fit you in probably. So I got my first fan email. Oh, listener, I probably wasn't a fan. Um, from somebody who wanted to ask questions on a couple of episodes. So we are going to answer them in order by the episode of when it came out. Uh, if you need to go back and look at those episodes and maybe recap a little bit, uh, that might be helpful. Or if you remember it so well, you can just listen and enjoy. Okay, so the first one will be on the first cause proof, which is the first episode we ever put out. It was probably the worst episode we put out because it was the first one we put out by we, I mean me. Uh, I was about the first cause proof. It was really long, like 50 minutes, but you can break it down into three short episodes like all our other episodes and listen to it. It's really good. It's a really simple proof of God's existence. Okay, so this is what he wrote. I got this, uh, I think it was Friday or Thursday, maybe. Um, So it's taken me a while to get it into this episode, but here we go. Also, no script here, no bullet points, so there's going to be a lot more ums and a lot more awkward pauses, but we're going to try to get through this. Okay, so this is what he wrote. This is his words. Okay, there's a lot going on, I assume he meant going on there, and it will take a while to absorb it all. The conclusion, I guess he finished absorbing it. We have achieved in approving the existence of an above-time free-willing cause of our reality. Oh, he was quoting my conclusion. So I wrote, apparently, or I said, we have achieved in proving the existence of an above-time free-willing cause of our reality. I gotta read this again. We have achieved in proving the existence of an above-time free-willing cause of our reality. Right. So at the end of our first cause proof, we summarized what we had proven and we had proven that there was an existence of an above-time, free-willing cause of our reality. So he writes, not sure about the free-willing part. And then he goes on to ask a couple more questions, but let's handle that at the beginning. Well, the reason why it has to be free-willing is because if you're not free-willing, which means you're not responsible for your own causes, that means by definition something else is responsible for your cause. If something else is responsible for your cause then A, you're not above time because you're changing prior to you being caused and post you being caused by the other cause. And second of all, then that cause would be the primary cause and it would have to be free willing because if it was also not free willing, that would mean there would be another cause and then that would have to be free willing. And if you keep going on forever, you would have to assume an infinite amount of other causes for our cause, which we, as we spoke about at length in that proof and in the next proof, uh, the next episodes, that it's impossible to have an infinite cause causal chain for something that's occurring now because you would never get through that causal chain. So in short, the reason why it has to be free-willing is because if it wasn't free-willing, it would be caused by something else, and then that would have to be free-willing unless that was caused by something else, which would have to be caused by something else, and that can't go on forever. It eventually has to end with something which is the cause um, itself. Now, why do we say free-willing? Maybe it's just inherently a cause. I mean, maybe it's always in a state of acting, the first cause would always just be in a state of acting. You can't choose when it acts. So we said that if it was always in a state of acting, it would mean it would always be creating. And being as the world can't be infinitely big, then the thing that's always acting couldn't be infinitely old. Just like the world couldn't be infinitely old, and the thing that's always acting on that world couldn't be infinitely old, if that's what it's doing. And therefore, it also would not work. So it has to be something that is above time, which means it's not changing. And therefore, when it decides to create the world 
that would have to be your first move. It can't always be creating the world or else the world would have to be infinitely old, which we said can't happen because the world changes. So again, I know we're going in short and you're not fully going to understand this unless you go through the first cause proof or listen to that episode, but that's just the way mailbags work. Okay, so then he continues. Also, why can't some sort of quantum fields be the cause of our reality? Question number two. Why can't the quantum fields be the cause of our reality? Now, I'm not saying he's doing this, but people love throwing out quantum, quantum things because nobody knows what the heck's going on. So it's like the end-all to all discussion. It's like, well, what if it's quantum and we don't understand it? So quantum fields wouldn't help you because unless it, we prove that whatever is the cause of everything has to have certain criteria. So if quantum fields have that criteria, then fine, then it could be it. If it doesn't have that criteria, then it can't be it. So if it does have that criteria and it could be it, then quantum fields would be what we would call God. It's a free-willing, above-time cause of our reality. You want to call it quantum fields, I call it God. It doesn't matter unless we have religious significance, which would be from the Sinai proof. It, wouldn't, it would be irrelevant anyways. In our next proof, meaning the proof of God's attributes, which is episodes two through five, I think, there we prove it can't be a quantum field because a quantum field is a concept and we prove that God is concept-less. So quantum fields are different than a chair, let's say. A chair is not a quantum field. A quantum field is the re- reality behind the chair. So that would make quantum field a concept, and we know God is not a concept from the next proof. So he couldn't be a quantum field anyways. But I, the question of saying, well, why can't he be the quantum field? If it fits into the, the criteria we set up, then it could be. And that's all we were trying to prove in that proof. Um, and then we explained in the next episodes why why we call that God. Whatever fits into those criteria, why we end up calling that God. That goes from the next episodes. Okay, uh, next question. The issues of time are very complex and are not currently well understood. Is time an emergent property of quantum fields? Or does time really exist? Or is time the result of the second law of thermodynamics? Etc., etc. So again, but it wouldn't matter. First of all, we addressed in that episode, even if time doesn't exist, because again, things are changing, whether in reality or in my view of reality or an illusion of my reality, things are changing. And when things are changing, they can't have been changing forever because that would cause this moment to come after an infinite amount of change prior. So even if time didn't exist and it was just an illusion of things changing, you couldn't have an infinite illusions because you'd have to get through an infinite amount of illusions to get to this point. If it is an emergent property of quantum fields, it would also be a problematic. You can't have it. The emergent property couldn't have existed forever because it's still changing and changes can't exist for infinite. Uh, Being the result of second law of thermodynamics probably wouldn't get you out of this problem either. Okay, so that kind of handles the questions from the first cause proof. Again, if you listen to the first cause proof, everything I said will make a little bit more sense. Maybe not too much more sense, but it'll make a little bit more sense. Sense. Okay, now we ask them the soul podcast, right? So we proof a soul. I think this was podcast number six. Maybe I got to get this clear. Okay. He's wrote this and this is what he wrote. It is becoming clearer that consciousness is related to the material brain and is probably an emergent property of its complexity. Science can now implant memories, modify them or destroy them. They can watch your brain think that your brain triggers an action before you are even conscious of it. There are likely no separate mind outside of the brain. Okay. So let's, handle that and dissect that so it's becoming clearer that consciousness is related to the material brain and is probably an emergent property of its complexity so if you listen to the proof we proved that it is not so it can't be coming clearer if we've proved it is not we we addressed 
the possibility that it is, and then we proved in the episode that it cannot be. And the proof was simple. Being as non-physicality cannot come from physicality because there's no non-physicality about physicality. It would have to go do a something from nothing, and something from nothing would be problematic. Okay, science can now implant memories, modify them, or destroy them. So that's true. I agree with that. Science could implant memories. They could modify them and destroy them. That's not a problem, right? Because we never said there's no interaction between the brain and your soul. Let's put it this way. The soul is your consciousness, but what is it conscious of? It's conscious of the stimuli the brain has given you. So if you mess with the brain, it'll mess with your consciousness and vice versa. If you mess with your consciousness, it'll mess with your brain. Now, this thing that he mentions that your brain triggers an action. Oh, and he says they can watch your brain think. They can't watch your brain think. They can watch neurons fire in your brain. Our whole proof is that thinking is actually occurring. Well, it's also occurring in the brain, but it's also occurring in a non-physical soul. So watching the brain work does not mean there's no soul. It just means the brain exists. Then he says that your brain triggers an action before you're even conscious of it. So I think we're going to do a podcast on this eventually when I get around to it, if we ever finish the Sinai Proof podcast. There, there was a study that seemed to show that the brain triggered a move. I think it was the, the, the person in the experiment was supposed to push a button and he was supposed to say when he... Okay, so he was supposed to push, push a button and they figured out through the experiment that the brain... They watched the brain and it triggered before the person was conscious that he was going to push the button, right? And the big claim is... Okay, well, first of all, that's not a claim against a soul. That just would be a claim against free will, right? It doesn't prove there's not a metaphysical soul. All that would prove is that your brain is responsible for your actions. Like your physical brain is responsible for your actions, not your soul. But it doesn't actually prove there's no soul. There could be a soul, and just the brain would be the one responsible for the action. The reason why they say it proves that is because you would hope that your actions would follow from your consciousness prior to the brain neuron firing. You don't want the brain neurons fire before you're conscious of it, because that means your action wasn't a product of your consciousness. So two points to this. The first is, if you go on uh, the good old Wikipedia, which is hardly a religious website, and go look at that experiment, there are plenty of scientists who disagreed with the conclusions of the experiment because... The way they did the experiment was they had a man who would watch a clock. It was a very exact clock, but he would watch a clock, and then he would click the button, and they would ask him when on the clock uh, did he, was he conscious, at what point was he conscious that he was going to click the button. Uh, I'm mixing up like how he clicked the button, but that's the ba- basics is that he, when he was conscious of it. Um, I haven't looked this up in like two years, so this is all from memory. I'm cool. And when he when he clicked the and then they, and then it would match that time that he said he was conscious of clicking the button to the time when he actually when they looked at the brain and saw the neuron firing and the neuron firing was prior to it but it was prior to it by like a millisecond and um, and obviously the, the there could be a problem of when he was collaborated his consciousness was when he looked at the clock versus when the neuron firing so it could be it turned out to be concurrent anyways so that was the scientific um, criticism of the experiment. But another criticism experiment is that the brain's neurons firing doesn't mean that's your conscious action, right? All that means is the brain is active. Now, subconsciousness also takes place in the brain. In Judaism, we believe that there are a lot of subconscious things going on leading towards your conscious action. So the firing of the neuron that occurred before the clicking of the button could merely be a product of a subconscious 
predecessor to your conscious thought. So the subconscious soul preceded the firing of the neuron in the brain, which was then followed by the conscious thought in your soul, which would be followed by the action of pushing the button. So either way, it didn't really disprove free will, but that's either way not a discussion because all we try to prove in that podcast is the idea of a soul. Okay, now he goes to the next one. This is him again. There is zero evidence for any souls interacting with us or our brains. So again, the podcast is the evidence. I mean, the the whole proof in the podcast is the evidence. So to say there is zero evidence is unfair. You have to address the argument made in the podcast and say that argument made in the podcast is no good. You can't say there is zero evidence. The evidence is the podcast. Not that there is a podcast. Well, that, that actually fits into the evidence of the podcast. But the content of the podcast gave evidence for the soul. He also continues, I would also argue there is probably is no soul. Because physics would need to be completely revised to allow it. For example, how does soul interact with our physical brain? Does the soul itself think? What is made of? How to detect it? So a lot of those things wouldn't be physics, right? Does the soul itself think would be metaphysics? Wouldn't, physics is the physical world. This is not physical. What is it made of? Obviously wouldn't be a physical question. How to detect it probably is not a physical question. You probably can't physically detect it. Um, how does soul interact with a physical brain? So again, you wouldn't have to revise physics. You would just have to allow that outside of physics, there's another force called human choice, which can interact with physics. Um, and yes, there would be no physical in- explanation for that interaction because that interaction is an interaction of a metaphysical soul with a physical brain. So that all the physical explanations would have to start afterwards. It doesn't mean physics is obsolete. It just only applies to physical things, which would make sense. He then says, I also think your episode suffers from a soul of the gaps type fallacy. So soul of the gaps basically means you ascribe an answer just because you don't understand something. So you say, I don't understand how the rain works, how rain falls, therefore there must be a God. I assume he's trying to say, I don't understand how thinking works, therefore there must be a soul, but I don't think that's true. We didn't merely say, I don't know how it works, therefore must be a soul. We said, we defined a soul in Judaism, we gave it a definition, and then we proved that such definition does exist in the world. Again, you have to listen to the episode, but we seem to not just ascribe a random answer to a problem we had. We had a definition, and we met that definition with, I believe, to be rigorous, logical demonstration. Okay, then he moved on to the Sinai proof episodes, which is probably more contemporary in people's minds. Okay, so in the Sinai proof, the first thing you wanted to say is that, and again, I'm not quoting anymore because this was a long back and forth on emails, he basically wanted to say that all, all the miracles could be explained naturally. So even if you wanted to say that it happened, yes, they saw 10 plagues, they walked through a splitting sea, they heard God speak on a mountain, they heard loud sounds on a mountain, the mun fell, the, the miracle food fell for them, the water came out of the rock when Moses hit it. But all of it could be explained naturally, and they just perceived it as supernatural events. To bolster this claim, he gave an example from the Hindu milk drinking miracle where people, it was in 1995, somebody offered a spoonful of milk to an idol, a Hindu idol, I believe it was, and the milk seemed to be lapped up by the idol and people were freaking out and they kept reproducing this miracle and it kept happening. I guess the uh, the idols had poor bone structure. It was a milk joke. And... So, so they sent actually a team of scientists to figure it out, and it turns out it was natural, right? There was a natural explanation for it. I forgot it was something to do with water tension and yada yada. I mean, the, the idol, when they looked at it, had that milk mustache from the Got Milk advertisement. Um, 
so so you wanted to use that to bolster his claim that you see natural events could be interpreted in a supernatural way, even though they're really natural, which, which is obviously true, right? Everybody can interpret natural events as supernatural. The problem is that you can't just make a line like, yeah, any natural now, because this natural event got interpreted supernaturally, but it was really natural. Therefore, every event that's interpreted supernatural could actually be natural. It would depend on how supernatural event was, right? Like if I observe, observed, uh, observed, observed would be the word. If I observed me, I'm sitting in a basement. I think I've used this example before, but I'm sitting in a basement, um, a good, a while away from Madison Square Garden. But if I threw a basketball from this room and it bounced all the way to Madison Square, Square Garden and went in the hoop, right? So yes, I mean, technically I could explain it naturally, but one wouldn't. I mean, it's just so unlikely that that's natural that you wouldn't. So events like that, you can't just say, oh, that could just be explained. Even though I understood it as supernatural, it could be explained naturally, right? That would be never, that would never be an event that one would think is natural. So it really just depends on the event. So if we look at the Sinai story, so yeah, if it was like just a loud mountain and that was the whole entire story, there was noises at a mountain. So yeah, obviously that could have been a natural event. It was thunder and lightning and they thought it was supernatural. Uh, Again, in our tradition, it's universal that God, they heard God's voice. The fact that they ended up in a mountain after three days of walking and immediately then, you know, the mountain started erupting and all sorts of noises and, and smoke. And, and then they heard God's voice. Okay, that's that's tough to explain away naturally, but I'll even grant that. But but the claim that all ten plagues were natural and then the splitting of the sea was natural and then the mountain was natural and then the splitting of the rock with the water coming out was natural and the mun falling is natural. I, I think it's just, it's ridiculous. I don't think any of us actually entertain such a possibility. Um, yes. I mean, again, you'll read articles, how they explained how, no, the split in the sea could have been natural because the, the wind was blowing at this angle. And if there's a rock in the middle of the ocean, it'll split like that. And we did it in, in a, in a computer model and it worked. It's like, yeah, but at the time they needed to cross and the wind you would need would knock all the people walking through it. it, it you know, the kids, women and the children, the speed, the wind speed has to be like 70 miles an hour. I mean, it would knock people uh, all over the place. It's just not, no, I don't think any normal person actually entertains that all those things could be natural, right? You ever seen the, uh, uh, it was some show they had a natural geographic about how all the plagues could be natural results of each other, right? But they, you know, they, they, they oversimplify the plagues. Um, they don't say that it only happened to the Egyptians, not the Jews. They don't actually say the full extent of the plague. And to say it happened to a slave population to get them out of Egypt as their leader was predicting it, uh, that would be a very, very, very low chance natural event. And then again, as it all followed through, it's, look, if I can get you to agree that it all actually happened and you just think it's natural, I think we've done a very, very good job explaining the rationality of those who believe in the Sinai story. He did bring up um, another point, which is the Fatima Sundance miracle, which I didn't include. I don't know why I didn't include it in my previous episode where we spoke about all the different uh, mass miracles. So the Fatima Sundance miracle happened in 1917 in Fatima, Portugal. Apparently, a couple of shepherd girls had a, uh, a revelation from Mary, um, a private revelation, obviously, as these things usually go, that something was going to happen on, I believe, June 13th, maybe January 13th, in 1917. So I have to look at the exact date. should have wrote it down. Um, and something was going to happen. And now, I'm not sure, 
I read a lot of these news reports. I'm not sure when they said they had this prophecy because a lot of the prophecies they said they only figured out retroactively. I'm not sure if this was one of the ones where they actually said it before, but I think it was because that's why they were all gathered there that day. So they were all gathered there and they're staring at the sun, right? You have have a group of, uh, it was 40,000 people staring at the sun for hours, right? Then suddenly reports come out that the sun started dancing, but not uniform dancing, right? It wasn't like oh, he was doing the Dougie, right? It, everybody's reports were different. There was like 10 different reports. Some people say it was zigzagging. Some people say it was like speeding up to earth. Other people saying they were started seeing, you know, colors in their eyes. You know, all the things you would expect when you stare at the sun for four hours. Uh, there was reports of like all the ground being miraculously dried, but other people denied that. A lot of people denied that. Um, now there are thousands of people at this event who said they didn't see anything. There's a picture of the event. The sun doesn't look abnormal. Everybody existed in the world in 1917. Nobody else outside of the people staring at the sun declared that the sun was doing anything weird. Everybody has the same sun, as we know. So that is a case where you could explain it naturally, right? I mean, there are reports at the time people were saying nothing happened. The only things that did happen are things you'd expect when you stare at the sun. So I don't even think that's a mass miracle enough to even talk about it. But I guess now we're talking about it. So there you go. To try to claim that that's any sort of parallel to the Sinai story, I think, again, goes beyond the pale of incredulity. Okay, the last point he brought up, which I thought is actually a cool point. It's actually a cool point to talk about. Not that all his points weren't cool. Look, I'm not going to come on here and make fun of people's emails. I thought all the points were very good. It was very respectful, and I'm answering them. You know, I give the time to answer them. And if you write in, I will answer you also. Spinoza's miracle theory. So Spinoza... And, and his gang, right? So you have like Hume, the other guy, Spinoza, the other guy. I mean, they, they basically say that, w- so when you see a miracle, right, it's just an event you haven't seen before, they want to say, right? Meaning we think we know what nature is. Maybe nature is that the sea splits right when you need it to split as you're running away from Egyptians. Maybe 10 plagues occur when you need, really got to go leave Egypt. His basic argument is why... You can't say it must be God just because you don't understand how it worked. You haven't seen the event before. Maybe it's just a natural phenomenon that you can't explain. So first of all, I don't think any normal person actually would think that, right? I don't think any normal person assumes there must be some natural law that allows for the miraculous splitting of a sea as I need it to happen, right? It's the, uh, the sea-splitting law of nature that any time a nation army is bearing down on you, the sea will split. Like, I don't think the average mind goes to that. So I don't buy the argument in the first place. Like, I think if Spinoza saw the sea split, he would believe. Um, I think it would cover, like, you know, oh, weird lights in the sky. That, that must be angels. No, I think I think that covers it finally. I think the miracles of Sinai story can't really be explained by, oh, maybe it was just a natural phenomenon we don't understand. But even if you want to go down that route and say, yeah, look, I can't prove to you it's miraculous. Maybe it was just a low probability natural event, or maybe it's a natural event I don't understand. Well, well, that's why we, we brought the Sinai proof after we proved God, because once we proved God, so then it's like, oh, so there is something that could break the laws of nature. Now, let's see, did any of those breaking the laws of nature ever occur in our history, and was there any interaction between that God and humanity? And then the argument of Sinai follows. So once you have it in that realm, it's really tough to say, yeah, nature has ran one way pretty much consistently, but randomly when a nation is in trouble and they're God's nation, it's natural laws, which is helping them out. I don't think that is rational at all, so I don't think Spinoza's argument really holds any water, no pun intended, if any was found at this point. Anyways, 
That is the conclusion of our first ever mailbag episode. We'll probably get better at these also. But please send in your emails because I love reading them. I love responding. And I love getting easy content.